It has intelligence stuff. It has analysis. It has John's memories, but it's not bullets or battles. That's kind of the category. That's the, that's what distributors call these movies is bullets and battles. And I wasn't going for that. And it's just not that kind of a story. Welcome to The Live Drop. I'm Mark Valley. My guest is Michael Ryder. He's a director. His film, Agents Unknown, airs January 2nd on Amazon Video On Demand. It's a documentary about uh, Lieutenant John Murphy, a young military intelligence officer with MACV as an advisor to Second Corps in 1966-1967 in Vietnam. Uh, the director, Michael, and I, we talk about his, his research, the origins of the project, his style as a filmmaker, uh, the challenges that John faced while he was in Vietnam, which you can hear about when you watch the film. But most importantly, we get into the role of the documentary filmmaker and uh, the similarities to an intelligence professional, uh, the research that has to be done, the contacts, the interviews, and ultimately how the final product, the film, is similar to an intelligence report or a product that has to go up to a customer or a gatekeeper or a producer or a distributor or whoever's going to get this film made. Um, and one of the challenges with, which is similar to the problems and challenges that John Murphy pointed out with some of the intelligence reports that were being sent up in Vietnam. This is an interesting conversation with a talented filmmaker. Begin transmission now. The movie's been in the works for some years. And so um, I had originally wanted to do some kind of feature project and I was looking for something. I had tried to raise money for, for long, bigger mm-hmm. projects like scripted stuff, you know, stuff kept falling through and typical indie filmmaker kind of problems. It occurred to me that this would be a project that I thought would be very self-contained, that I didn't need a huge budget, could be done fairly quickly. Of course, it took longer than quickly. <laughs> and I had the connection with John, who is the subject of the movie. So everything was kind of lined up and it's sort of like a small business or something. If the opportunity presents itself, go for it. There's a potential market for it. And it was a way, and he was game, of course. So, Sure. So were you working on something else at the time that you had to just sort of put on a back burner? There were a number of other projects that were in early stages that either I was trying to raise money for, or was doing script stuff or research or whatever. So it was, I didn't really have to table anything that sure. was that was far along. Um, I had one horror movie project, which I had spent a lot of time raising money for, and that was not going anywhere. So right. tabled that. But other than that, it was all preliminary projects. Had John told his story to someone else before? Had he been interviewed in that in that capacity? I don't believe so. You know, he had told stories to friends, but he had never gone into a lot of detail. And uh, and actually, now that we're talking about this, I remember John telling us one of his anecdotes, Vietnam anecdotes, to, you know, a, it was like a party or something. And I remember thinking, man, he's got a lot of good anecdotes. Maybe I can do something with this. And then it gradually sort of morphed into that. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that a little bit later, too, is that interview process. He didn't seem like they were rote stories that he'd told to the point where they just had no sentiment whatsoever. But, you know, by the same token, he he was pretty clear with what what was happening. He's a very direct, articulate, sort of calls it as he sees it type guy. And it's funny. I think that's what makes the movie unusual. But a lot of people who are have seen lots of Vietnam docs, including doc industry people, they sort of like their veterans divided into two groups. They, they want the hardcore soldiers, and then they want the people who are, um, I'm sort of over-exaggerating here, but like we were, you know, baby killers and we were the whole, we were, you know, Born on the, the fourth, the born in the Fourth of July oh, crowd. Exactly. 
Mm-hmm. Born on the 4th of July crowd. And, you know, both of those groups are fine and, and have valid stuff, obviously, to talk about. But there's not a lot of... That's not a kind of dismissive, the born on the 4th of July crowd. Sorry out there. Yeah, go ahead. Certainly, I don't I don't mean to put it down or anything. It's just... I, um, I did. I put it down. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> it's somebody who takes the middle road and is more analytical and, and balanced and says, well, we did these things right and these things wrong, and this is how it worked out is something that is more found in books and analytical stuff versus a movie. And so right. that was one aspect that attracted me to the story. Yeah. Cause there were some other, I mean, there's been a, in the last few years, there's been some other films. There was the one you, you talked about as tonally influencing your film, or the one about um, Robert McNamara. The fog of war is great. Being a fan of Errol Morris. I, I kind of use that movie when I describe agents unknown to people. Fog of war is, is the Vietnam War from the top down, mm-hmm. Namara and the, the big level decision makers. And Agents Unknown is Vietnam War from the ground up and how the information works its way upwards. And that's a big theme of the movie, uh, how the bad information works its way upwards. So maybe we can talk about that for a bit. I mean, the movie was about John Murphy. He was in the 519th Military Intelligence Battalion. He was assigned to... Team 31 of MACV, Military Assistance Command, Vietnam. As he kind of expressed it to you, what were his, what were his challenges? You know, I think he knew he, and as he says in the movie, he um, felt that the war was misguided, but not immoral, to use his words. And so I think he had misgivings going in, but he felt it was justified. And then once he got there, the issues of intelligence collection, dealing with the local Vietnamese who were willing to help sometimes, but who were also highly corrupt and just unreliable. And then having to befriend them and work with them and play that whole political, you know, get them on your side game. And then taking that unreliable information and bringing it to the authorities and analyzing it like a detective would, there's an overlap with sort of journalism, detective type stuff analysis. And he brings this information and then seeing it go up the chain wrong or having to fudge the information to please his, his superiors, it was a very dispiriting uh, experience. Ex- you know, even though there were successes here and there, and it wasn't all bad, certainly, and, and, and they were effective in their intelligence work, but the U.S. wanted to impose this kind of collection system on the Vietnamese. Another theme of the movie is, is how the U.S. tried to impose this structure of intelligence collection and a parallel government to the civilian government so that the civilian leadership was limited. How the system was just not integrating well with, mainly because there's a big, there are big cultural differences with the Vietnamese and the U.S. didn't try to, they tried to, to make an effort to work with them and understand, but it just didn't get all the way there. You met, you, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You said that, well, the Vietnamese had a much different method of collecting information it, it, it was it was broad um, it was based more on common sense and intuition whereas the americans was sort of direct open upfront, maybe a little bit ag- aggressive there's an anecdote which um didn't make it in the movie because it's a very small thing but he he had an example where the americans there had been a report an nva unit was moving through some area and you know, the, the U.S. has this elaborate system of, of reports, and a big part of John's job was coordinating this stuff and sort of working with the South Vietnamese to make sure that they had equivalent information or, their, or 
he could corroborate the information. And I believe the the story was that, you know, the South Vietnamese were able to corroborate it. They just had a much simpler way. They would go to the village and just talk to the locals and kind of get a general idea. And because they could deal with them better and they weren't the outsider so much that they they could just validate it better. And they didn't have to go through this elaborate process. Now, they did have a, a bureaucracy and a whole system, too, but they just could handle it better. They weren't the outsider coming in, trying to make sense of this whole system and then take their system and impose it on the locals. The film is Agent Unknown. It's being released January 1st on Amazon, Video On Demand. And uh, yeah, it's the story of a MACV advisor in Vietnam in 66 to 67. I mean, people can watch the film to find out you know, exactly what, what, what he went through. It's kind of hard for me to sit here and try to uh, repeat it. You know, The cool thing about a documentary film is you have you know, like firsthand sources. He's sitting there on the screen telling you what's happening. I guess I could probably leave a lot of the details of the film to that, but I want to know about your research process and how it started. Did you start with the video? Did you start with reading about the situation? I just, how did, how did that start and what did it entail? Right. So it started with John and, and I had worked out with him what we were going to cover in the interview based on his the stories that I'd heard from him before and what the interesting areas were, episodes, anecdotes, analysis from him. Then from there, it was figuring out what archival material I could get on my tiny budget that would cover that stuff. I was working from an outline of his stories and what we had covered. Really, it came from after shooting the interview, because then I could say, okay, this, this, this are going to be in the movie. This is out. And then from there, getting what footage I could that would correspond to it. From there, filling in the gaps of research as needed. I have a number of books that, that I used, but I need archival and I need to corroborate these dates. And I need to make sure that this is, you know, it was a bit of a hodgepodge. So your structure appeared pretty quickly after the interview? Yes. In laying out as a rough cut what I would cover. But yeah, it came, it came pretty fast. It was clear for the most part, what would be in there and what wouldn't be. And you have the natural arc of his tour as well. That always helps. Begins with his training, ends with him leaving. Right. And then we got, where are we going to fit in this other stuff? And then it's sort of a matter of, of mixing in personal anecdotes and kind of some funnier stuff versus the hardcore information, intelligence gathering and spreading it out so that the movie isn't front-loaded or back-loaded with one or the other. If you look at it like and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but if you look at it like the documentary filmmaker as an intelligence uh, collector or, or operative, did you feel any similarities there? Did you feel any similarities to what John was doing, like with informants as you were speaking to him and he was trying to put a picture together of what was going on? To an extent, yes, in that there's research, there's some analysis, and in an interview, of course, you're trying to get the most out of the person. Now, in this case, because I've done other interviews for other documentary stuff, um, sh other people's shows that I was working on. This case was unusual in that I knew John and that we'd worked out for the most part what we were going to talk about. So those two things are rare to non-existent in, in interviews. Usually you don't know the person. There weren't too many gotcha moments or anything like that. It, it's more about his reminiscing versus me trying to get him or pry information out of him that he didn't. Coerce him or manipulate him, right? Yeah, that kind of thing. He does tell a story, I don't want to give away the details and spoil it, but where he talks about covering something up that another uh, colleague of his did. There's a gotcha question with that. I, it's not a gotcha question. I'm 
John's going to hear this. He's been born. <laughs> and so, uh, but it wasn't a gotcha question, but it was sort of a semi gotcha. And so in that case, you know, that was something that I had thought I should ask him about, which I think was fair. But generally with these interviews, you've got to have your plan of stuff to talk about, but then be willing to wing it and riff. And I'm pretty good with riffing, but in this case, there's so much going on and I knew him and we had this plan. So right. the riffing, I didn't riff as much as I wanted to. And in doing that, a uh, couple things got left out that I wish I'd gotten. What was left? I mean, could you mention it though? What was left out? Sure. And maybe what um, decisions, what other things you might've had to cut? So as far as cutting stuff from the actual movie, there were a few anecdotes, which will be in the DVD special features. I'm going to have some deleted scenes, mostly funnier stuff that they were good comic relief anecdotes, but they took up too much time when in my rule is when in doubt cut for time. So, right. so those didn't really bother me. But um, as far as other stuff, John says something very moving in the interview. And it was an offhand thing that where he was, Talking about one of the South Vietnamese soldiers he was working with, John asked him, you know, we're going to leave one day. And what are you going to do? The soldier said, you know, I'll go up in the mountains and I'll keep fighting. You know, we'll keep, we'll keep the fight strong. Right. And John, John just sort of said it as an offhand remark and then went on to something else. And in the interview, I would, there was so much going on that later it's like, oh, man, if I just pressed on that and just caught that, it would have been would have been a good moment. And so there's a few things like that here and there. Yeah. Back to your interview process. What is your, what are your guidelines when you, when you interview someone? I mean, John, sure. you said it was a little bit easier. He was a family friend. There was an immediate trust, but um, what if, what if you didn't know him? I'm curious as well. I'd like to be a better interviewer. Sure. <laughs> you know, I'd like to know what, what your, uh, doing a good your job. experience is. I mean, I'm, I'm no master, but it's pretty straightforward stuff in my experience. Don't interrupt. If you're shooting an interview, one trick, which we did with John, is to shoot in a recording studio. So you have flawless sound. And I see this a lot with, I look at a lot of raw documentary footage of indie filmmakers. My, my background's editing. So if I'll consult on something or I'm working on some project, I see a lot of they filmed in there's construction outside because they wanted to save money on a location, which is totally understandable, but then you're spending that money fixing the sound later. So, yeah. um, so shoot in a recording studio if you can. As I said, be be kind of, aware of the offhand remark or something that you as the interviewer could riff on to make something else. That's huge. I'd say for, for documentary people, a big, a book that was a huge help to me. And I, I would recommend for anybody, even people doing not film, but audio docs or whatever is directing the documentary by Michael Rabiger, an old school BBC documentary guy who just grind out these documentaries on everything and his tips, you know, general how to interview people and, procedures and stuff he's it's amazing and your movie you talked about john's watching the vietnamese interrogation methods i mean they dialing someone up or ringing someone up and these these horrible things that they were doing um i just wondering if you uh, how is it similar to interrogating i mean there's there is no like we said there is no manipulation and coercion but how did john express that or did you learn anything about interviewing from john's experience as an interrogator well john himself because i will dial up the electricity in a moment <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a pretty you good idea. Did you, did you get a headset and hook these wires up? Oh, you? I just felt something. <laughs> I wonder. It was, it's such an unusual situation with him because I knew him. So I really couldn't quote unquote, put the screws to him. It, it was a, uh, I could, but I chose not to do that. You know, you got a limited amount of time to shoot the interview and we got a huge laundry list of stuff to cover. So, I mean, it just occurred to me that one of the 
one currency that you hold as an interviewer is how that person looks or how they appear or, or what they say. Were there any moments where you, you felt, yeah, that there's a message he wanted to get across? I think he got it across. A big goal of the movie was to illustrate his story. I don't personally have an, an ax to grind on the war. The opinion that comes across in the movie is his. And that includes movie opens with a Pentagon Papers quote sort of talking about the advisor's problems the advisor has. And then it closes with a quote that brings intelligence process into the current day. And so I think his message comes across. Was he he sensitive about talking about Vietnam at all? Was he concerned about the message he was getting or giving? Yes and no. He, you know, I think there's certain things like the venereal disease story. He was happy to talk about it. It didn't affect him. Again, to mm-hmm. be clear, and so he—it was the Air Force that had the. It was the disease. Air Force, it not wasn't the Army, but nor the Marines. The, the Air Force couldn't help themselves, and so <laughs> you know he was happy to talk about that stuff. I think for the most part, he was happy to talk about it because he trusted me, and you know he was involved in assisting in a cover-up of this event. But he is feels guilty about it and expresses that in the movie, and and his attitude is that was the situation I was in, and I didn't have much of a choice, which yeah. I which I believe. And so for the most part, I think he was comfortable with stuff. Um, I think he would have made it. If there was something he did not categorically want to bring up, he would have, he would have told me. Stuart Harrington wrote a book, Stalking the Viet Cong. And he worked for the Mac, Mac V, kind of a similar capacity as John, but in uh, a couple of years later. And he was describing his return in the airport. He went into the men's room and it was filled with GIs changing out of their uniforms into their civilian into their civilian clothes. So they didn't want to walk through the airport with their, uh, with their uniforms on. Did he talk about that? The after, after Vietnam? I mean, we've heard this story before, but I mean, did he talk about that at all? I don't think he had that problem. I think if he had, he would have brought it up in it. And I think it would have been in the movie because it would have been a dramatic thing. I mean, he, he was a different, he was, he wasn't infantry or Marines. He was out in the field dealing with the locals and stuff, but he, because he was an officer and was an intelligence guy, I think he, my impression was that he was one degree removed from that kind of experience because yeah. he's not the infantry guy that people can point to and say, you killed people, right. you know, you shouldn't have done that. He's sort of on a slightly different track and yeah. people, maybe people didn't know what he did or whatever, you know. So and that's one of the things that's, that's unique about your film and interesting about it is that it does show the experience of someone from, um, you know, Mac V. I mean, you always hear Mac V about these, you know, Navy SEAL, Phoenix assassin. It's off, you know, it's often these sort of B movies that the Phoenix program gets tossed in. But, um, you know, there's, there was ARVN, which was, you know, the army in Viet, you know, the combat forces in Vietnam, which, com, you know, comprised, comprised the majority of all the soldiers over there, but often overlooked was the advisory role that, kind of the Vietnam conflict began with, and ultimately they were the last to leave as well. You're, you talked about the structure of your film. You went from the interview with John, and then you sort of, um, I mean, it was a firsthand account. You didn't really have to verify a lot of, a lot of stuff. It was, it was right there for you. And that he, that he trusted you so well was evident. Um, it was really one of the most relaxed storytelling interviews that, that I'd, I'd seen in a while. Some people have said he's very chill, and very what's going you know, on he's very kind of like or somebody i forget what somebody said he's like even tone of john in the movie you know some people might like that some people might not i'm like I don't. yeah even even behind it. him you're you had a, a sheet pulled or a, a, a thing pulled up behind him that that copper 
she even that looked a little bit relaxed, you know, like it wasn't too, you know, the corners weren't tight, like, like a military bed had been made. Uh, you know what I mean? It, it, it looked like, hilarious. I think that it, it felt like, ah, oh, well, we can relax a little bit here. We're not going too crazy with stuff. You know, we I don't mind you, a wrinkle here and there. That is fantastic that you, you've just made my day by saying that. Cause I have obsessed over that stupid backdrop. That's like a standard interview backdrop when you got nothing else. Yeah. The cameraman showed up. He did a great job by the way. And he's like, I got these three colors and I'm like, or I got this backdrop. What do you want to light it up? And I'm like, uh, okay. Yeah, that's fine. I got a, I got 50 million other things to deal with. Good. I'm glad it relaxed you. Cause I, yeah. I was like, I should I have made it blue? I was kind of agonizing over this. John could have worn a different color shirt. I, you know, this is the kind of obsessive. I thought the color worked and it wasn't OD green and it wasn't like super taut. So I could, I mean, as, as a former, you know, I was in the military for a while. I, you know, I felt, okay, good. I don't have to, I'm not inside <laughs> and not inside a GP medium tent. You know? Oh, okay. Um, get d- hearing a debriefing. So I is thought, that, was, okay, good. I thought it was, uh, it was cool. Definitely made by a civilian, but definitely cool <laughs> in a good way. And I, I also, your, the film itself, um, the music was fat, was, was wonderful. I, I felt, Thank you. did you feel any, any like genre expectations for a Vietnam film? I basically wanted to do something a bit different from the standard TV Vietnam doc where, or any history documentary where the music, they always use the same music. So if it's, Vietnam stuff, they'll use 60s. Yeah, I mean, or, or you know, we gotta get out of this place. Classic 60s Vietnam stuff that everyone knows. Didn't want to use that. Couldn't have afforded it, even if I wanted to use it. So that, I mean, it's yeah. what's happening. And I wanted to get across the idea of, because a big part of the, the movie is the military machine, the bureaucracy of intelligence. There's a lot of droney and electronic and sort of more rhythmic type music. There's a lot of expectations with this kind of stuff. So people people want those 60s songs. They're where certain am, where really am I? Want. Am I in the and Philippines like, or am I in Vietnam? Is it, are the doors? Like, I can't, I'm like, I can't give you Rolling Stones, sorry. But I did use some analog instrument type stuff. The movie opens with where there's sort of a sitar in the background. So that has a 60s flavor to it. There's also some kind of you know, tribal indigenous percussion stuff going on too, like some right. kind of singular percussion things that I think helped. What, how did you choose to like change the music? Do you, do you structure that with different parts of the story? How do you know when to change the music? It was, it depended on the, you know, the tone of the scene and the pacing. And those were the main things. And the music has to be a bed. It can't be too distracting, but it can't fight the subject's voice. That was a big part of it was I you know I went through probably going on 200 separate tracks and a lot of the stuff was great but it would just fight with John's voice and so those were the main factors you know it's mm-hmm. the pacing the tone does it fit does it fight with anything else does it work so what are the challenges for a documentary filmmaker when you're making like a cut <laughs> you know I mean I, I did I took an editing class and they talk I mean there's movement there's kind of you know matching the shape and the you know all cutting lies. cutting with the music you know those different ways like how do you it's all what it's all lies it's all lies it's all lies how do you how do you how do you know when to how do you know when to cut to something else it's a pretty basic question but is there anything is it just an intuitive feel that you have or do you kind of have any guidelines it comes down to like in- intuitive because it's it's ultimately a pacing thing there rules of thumb and kind of hard and fast rules, but it's really a pacing thing. I mean, there's, there's cases where one of the guys, 
Oh, Walter Murch, the yeah, in the blink of an eye. That's a good book. Yes. Yeah. That's less about well, actually he does cover some technique in that, which is pretty good. He has some good tips. And it's a it's a mix of the movement, the pacing. Is it jarring? Does it flow well? It's a it's a odd art. It's in craft. Like there's no sort of fixed way to do it. You could I think even an iPhone has like a Ken Burns method where you can kind of zoom in on the picture and you can move from the picture to something else. You know, it's funny. A few years ago, I worked at, the, at a documentary news company in, here in Chicago. And and I would do these, what to me seems standard zooms or whatever on photos. And people are like, oh, you're doing the Ken Burns method. And I'm like, <laughs> where did this come from? Look, all due respect, I'm a big Ken Burns fan. Yeah. But, didn't invent zooming in on a photo like, well i think I he didn't i, I think he did it's not that he didn't not that he invented it but i think that's what he that's the only thing he used but yeah i mean it, it's a mix of those things and it just comes with it just comes with practice and and working with lots of different material and you know even now like i had a, a guy who's a mentor editor one of the best editors not the best editor in the city and he would he watched a scene and he's like oh i would have maybe taken a second off here or there. and i'm like oh maybe i should have done that on the other hand his experience is what he would instinctively go for is not what I was instinctively going for. You know, I was, I'm mm. this movie. I let shots linger a bit longer, used longer takes because he had actually edited the uh, national geographic series on Vietnam. So, and he was, he's a veteran TV editor. And so certainly a, a huge help with stuff. But in this case, even he said, yeah, maybe you you know, your style in this is to leave it a bit longer or whatever. Like it's not, it's not set in stone what you should or shouldn't do. Uh, for my editing class, I chose as my exercise to cut Harrison Ford out of Apocalypse Now. How did that go? It kind of worked. I mean, I ended up getting cut the bigger speech, but then you realize, oh my God, that was kind of repetitive, him talking about Colonel Kurt so much, you know? So I'm going to send it to, um, you know, the director, see if he wants to put it, see if he wants to reissue the film. Yeah, I mean, you know, you never know. Have you seen the Redux with all the extra stuff? Oh, the one with the colonial dinner that they have with the yes. French? Now, that's a case where you could you could say those extra scenes were all cut, from what I remember, reasonably well. There's no problems. But the scenes themselves just were not necessary. That's not a timing thing. It's more of a trim the fat or aesthetics or do we really need this to fill out the story kind of a thing. So I don't mean to do like a gotcha thing, but I'm just thinking about you know, sending up an intelligence report. Uh, I interviewed, uh, I, I throw this name around all the time, but I interviewed General Hayden a while ago. And he said, you know, the intelligence guys are the storytellers. And they have a story, they have a story to tell. And I thought to myself, I wonder if they're kind of cutting stuff to make the story more compelling sometimes, or if they're aware of the, their audience. Oh, yeah. Yes, I, I assume yes to both. Any kind of reporting in an official hierarchy or big situation like that, probably similar, I would guess, to police reports or whatever, where I take that back because a police report, you'd have to stick more to facts maybe. But with intelligence reports, you know, they're working on information that is so often unreliable. Plus, they have the political considerations. Is my boss going to like this? Am I going to get shafted because I'm reporting bad news? Uh, is my is my source good? John deals with this in the movie where he talks about the unreliability and sort of evaluating. They would give codes to this information, and you know it would just get disregarded. Or the person higher up who's reading it, who is planning an operation, just doesn't look at the code and just reads whatever the the, sec, the text says, and then goes off and does it, and people die perhaps unnecessarily. I think that in terms of leaving stuff out or juicing the information or whatever i think that that probably that's inevitable 
you know, they got to uh, cast the right light on what they found. Otherwise, somebody else uh, above them is not going to be happy. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine the challenge you just given the presidential daily brief? I mean, to make that interesting in 140 characters before before Trump loses interest. In- no, oh, and I, I mean, it's crazy. Like, oh, that's- you have to think about your audience. I mean, you th- must think about your audience as, you know, giving intelligence reports as well. I mean, both yeah, of the intelligence officers were just kind of speculating, but. Right. I mean, it's reading these reports, they're interesting reports, but the language is very dry. And so it's, I can only imagine, all right, the president, you got to distill all of this stuff into a one page thing that the president will find interesting for five minutes before he eats his Big Mac, you know, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost an impossible task. So the movie ends with a, a quote from the Times about a present day example of an intelligence problem that John discusses. In other words, the problems that John brings up are still relevant today. And that quote was a substitute. I originally had a different quote at the end. And that quote was a similar thing about uh, intelligence gathering problems and how the process is totally messed up, present day quote. But it was from Michael Flynn. And this is pre-Trump. I want to be very clear to everybody. This is pre-Trump. And it was... You know, the while he was director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Yeah, he basically says the whole process is screwed up. Everyone is incompetent. Words along those lines. And so then Trump is, that, this is before Trump is elected. Trump is elected. And then I had a, I had a consultant saying, you got to take that quote out now. And I'm like, well, it's a really <laughs> good quote. I mean, I'm no, I'm agnostic on Trump and Flynn anyway, but it's like, do I have to, and finally I was like, all right, I got to take it out. Otherwise, we're just going to get steamrolled with this whole craziness so we found something else that reflects the problems that i think works pretty well i'm sorry i've never heard that before what do you mean you're agnostic on flynn and and trump well i mean i'm just meaning that i'm not gonna proselytize about anything i'm not yeah i'm not on a i'm not on a i don't have an axe to grind with with that stuff but i'm gonna use that for now i'm gonna politically i'm an agnostic i'm an agnostic maybe that's not the it all could be happening right uh, now (laughs) right not deny that all right (laughs) clearly bad choice of words for me agnostic (laughs) i'm i'm uh apolitical on this this topic now and so um on these guys now so it was kind of like come on it's a really good flynn quote can i use it please 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 and then and then finally it's like all right we're just gonna get ambushed left and right if we use them and whatever so we'll find something else so that was weird yes your film is really i mean i mean not just your film but this conversation is really about not so much the collection but it's the presentation of the information once you get it and you you send it up like when you're making a film are are you aware of you said you've done some broadcasting work you know you're making this film privately but are you aware of yeah the audience are you aware of producers or the the gatekeepers when you're making a film how does how does that come into your decision making oh boy we only got 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 another hour for that we we got like three minutes all right i got a good story about this so when i was initially planning the movie and speaking with john and sort of gathering his stories and stuff i i had seen there was another documentary documentary that came out about iraq war stuff now I, i don't want to get into specifics and name the people or anything about this but did very well in major festivals, played theatrically. And I contacted the director and I explained what I was about to do and just asking him for general tips on distribution because that was my concern. I, my background is production and editing, but I'd also worked in distribution and seen that side of it. So I knew what to expect to an extent, but this movie, um, Iraq War movie, didn't, it played it down the middle. And that's what I was trying to do 
with Agents Unknown and John is play it down the middle. And I think John does that. And so I asked this guy, I said, you know, you're, how did you sort of work the distribution with this? Because you're not, you don't have an axe to grind one way or the other. Right. And my additional question, the one other thing I was wondering is he had, uh, the film had been self-released on DVD, self-distributed. So it had gotten a theatrical, but it had, the producer and director had decided to distribute it themselves on DVD, which was, which was an, un, an unusual move. Mm-hmm. Um, self-distribution is kind of a last resort, although less so now. So I said, what, why did you guys do this? Give me some distribution tips. And he basically said, our movie was not, because we played it down the middle, it was a harder film to sell. He said, we talked to politicians on both sides. We talked to networks. We did everything we could to try and get them interested. And they came back to us, all of them essentially saying, quote, your movie is not on message enough for us, by which he meant that they didn't choose sides and, and have an axe to grind. So he, he basically said, if you're playing it down the middle, you're setting yourself up for a struggle, which I kind of figured, and which is sort of hasn't been that bad. But, you know, it, it's definitely easy if we had choose, chosen the gung ho or the gung no. I think it would have been an easier road as far as gatekeepers and whatnot goes. Because again, it's like with the music or the, the personality of the film, I think people expect certain things. The movie has action. It has this, it has intelligence stuff. It has analysis. It has John's memories, but it's not bullets or battles. That's kind yeah. of the category. That's the, that's what distributors call these movies is bullets and battles. And I wasn't going for that. And it's just not that kind of a story. And so when you have something that's a little, that's a slightly different flavor, then gatekeepers are kind of like, oh, I don't know, you know, whatever. It's whenever something's a little different, it's a bit tougher. It's a bit of a tougher sell, I think. Oh, it's interesting now. I mean, this the increased polarization politically is also, it's a reality of the entertainment industry as well. You have to sort of choose what, in some ways, which, you know, which side you're going when you're on a topic like that. It, it is. And I, I wonder, you know, I, I, I joke with John, I said, oh, you should have been, you know, you should have fit your role more. You should have been more of this or that. And, you know, of course, I don't expect him to do that. But <laughs> let his um, hair grow, have a beard, hair grow. I, I, you denim know, I said, jacket with a bunch of patches. Yeah, I, mean, I know. I mean, you know, he just doesn't. You want to hear about Vietnam. <laughs> all the all the cliches. And um, yeah, he didn't really fit those. He wasn't really one or the other. I mean. Right. I mean, there's a guy who's with a hat, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, it, 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 that's what, that's one thing I like about it is that he's kind of this very even calls it as he sees it. There's the good and there's the bad. It's funny. You mentioned the patches. I use a lot of graphics and army graphics and things like that in the movie. And I did look into using patches and it's so fitting with John because there's all these great Vietnam war patches. They're Oh, I even looked up the ones from his unit too. I was gonna, oh, did you? Oh, man. I was like, oh, oh man. Wow, well, I hope you didn't find something that I didn't find because that would drive me absolutely nuts. But like <laughs> he, the patches that I found for his unit and intelligence were very generic intelligence graphics. And so I didn't use them. But he's not the typical guy where, you know, he's got the skull patch or the, it's more about his memories and articulating stuff and just calling it as it was. I'm curious what you found for this patch, but I almost don't want to know. I know you're trying to look it up and I'm going to see it and be like, Oh my God. I ding, totally ding, missed ding. It. How do you I like totally missed it? All right. I think this is a way to share your screen. This is a way to ruin my weekend. I'll send, I'll send it to you. No, it's pretty send simple. Send it to me. I'll, I'll email, I'll open it in about a year. No, it's and weird. So- There's like a, <laughs> it's like a Sphinx with a globe behind it. 
Yes. The strength. strength. That's exactly. Okay, good. We found the same thing. Strength through intelligence. Then, of course, there's just the MACV, which is the sword with the red background. Right. Okay, good. We found the same thing. Thank you, God. Yeah. Yeah, the Sphinx is the general um, intelligence symbol, and that is in the movie. I use a different graphic, but, you know, there's all kinds of expectations, and I I try to meet some of those because that's what people want in a general way, but to provide enough different stuff too. So what do you think are like, as you remember making the film, what for you as the filmmaker were like this kind of striking images? One of the more striking images from the movie for me, and I think for others who've told me was um, there's a long shot, a long take of mines being dropped where John is. All those little pieces. Yeah. And they're odd shaped. They're not typical. They don't look like bombs. They look like, these sort of rectangular or rectangular, triangular um i've never seen that before yeah, yeah it's a weird type of mine they're called gravity mines what struck me was that there's just this footage of this stuff pouring out and it just keeps going and going and going and going and so i use a minute of it a minute long take i looked up i found this at the archives and was there actually a minute of that going by i mean and on the oh, film yeah. or the repeat? Oh, there's no 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 there's there's a minute in the movie in the actual raw footage of those mines, it, it goes on for like 10 minutes or something. I mean, it's crazy. Holy like it just, shit. it just goes on and on and on and on. And it was crazy. And people seeing that are always like, Oh my God. Cause you've seen the bombs. Everyone's seen the, in Vietnam. Mm, the the nap- bombs stream of the napalm across the horizon. Sure. And so forth. But this thing, they look weird. It's a weird thing. And then it, it's just stuff's pouring out. So, um, and I, it was kind of backlit too. Like the sun was shining on the mines as they were right flying around right so that was the striking thing and then just seeing that going that going with where john is talking about we we would work with the air force and we would have to pick these random targets where the stuff would get dumped even if we heard some unreliable report we would just we had to waste these towns so that was a striking image a lot of the photos that john took of the kids kids was a big part of the movie too kids smoking or just interacting with john the report graphics the maps a lot of it you know i just tried to find stuff that was as visually striking as possible i'm looking at different reports it was anywhere from tw- the phoenix program was set up so that it was trying to identify the civilian civilian collaborators in the vc structure in south vietnam that's one of the roles that MACV and these advisors played was um yes. in the program I was looking at, into it a little bit, but there's anywhere from 20,000 to 80,000 deaths. I was just wondering if you, if you knew anything about that. Well, I, I can't speak to the specific body count in terms of the Phoenix program. And I should, I should be, make clear to people, I'm hardly a historian or expert. I was, my goal was to illustrate John's story. But John was um, affiliated with Phoenix sort of on the edges before it was Phoenix. So it was, it was ISEX, um, which was the attempt to coordinate intelligence and create these sort of centers where intelligence would be processed and coordinated with the South Vietnamese. So, which John then goes into saying there are lots of problems in his area with that and sort of giving, explaining why that didn't work so well. I was more interested with that and kind of John's take on why it didn't work where he was he he gave an example if you're you're getting information from these informants in some town that's great but what if they what if the guy giving you the information said what if person a says well person b is you know he's affiliated with bc well that's great but what if person a just doesn't like or has some axe to grind against person b and is setting that person up and making stuff up that 
and then and, the U.S. comes and, in and kills that person. And give and reporting multiple events to different to different collection agencies as well, so they would give the illusion of confirming something like that. And right. Once they understood our system, it was just yeah, ripe for manipulation. Right, and then you have the added fact, which is a big part of the movie, where these these organizations, whether it's the U.S. and the South Vietnamese or uh, multiple organizations within the U.S. or multiple organizations within the South Vietnamese Army that don't talk to each other. And so you have this information that is starts unreliable and then it gets scrubbed or delivered or it's like a game of telephone in a way. You have all these people talking to each other, stuff gets lost or mas- information gets massaged and the end result is just not right or is flawed in, in a significant manner. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks for making this film. And uh, again, it's Agents Unknown. Who's Agent Unknown? Obviously. Okay. <laughs> well, the Agents Unknown is the is the sort of categorization that was given, and John brings it up in the movie, where um, there's a part where he refers to a, an F6, which is a category that they would give to an agent they really didn't know. It was basically unreliable. The information was dodgy. The person maybe was dodgy. And they had to make a decision, usually some kind of military action decision as to what to do. And so, and from there, the, inf- the bad information, you know, goes upwards and outwards. That's where the title came from. Originally, the movie was called The Province. The distributor did not like that title and they were actually had a little butted heads on that one, but they turned out to be right. And so um, I think Agents Unknown is a better title and it's more accurate to what John's talking about. It's been more evocative and stuff. So um, I like that. Yeah, that name's got legs. Yeah, Good. L- last question. Um, why are stories about espionage and spies and intelligence, why, why is it interesting in these stories? Why, why is it interesting to you? True crime, police stuff, organized crime, uh, anything along those lines. It's another world. It's a secret world. That's fundamentally it. And then from there, it's intelligence work is a mix of journalism, detective work, but then you also have this military action, violent component to it. And I think that mix plus the general, of course, there's James Bond and Jason Bourne and all that stuff. I think that mix is always going to draw people in because it's just what people don't know. It's a secret world. And it's also a world where there's plenty of stuff about like World War II spies and current day spies or whatever or cold war and stuff but there's not a whole lot about vietnam and that era and people it's almost like people forget that it existed there or or they know but it's just not covered that much and i think one one reason just to go off slightly that it's not covered that much is because i think a lot of the gatekeepers to bring that in too are are worried that it's too uh, analytical or academic or it's not a guy running around with a gun the real stuff to me, was always more interesting. The guy with the gun is the tip of the spear, right? That's the cliche. So it's it's everything that's leading up to that and all of the back and forth and, and analysis and sort of fighting with your superiors and all this other stuff that leads to the military action is what's interesting to me. And so I think as people always, people want to learn more about the real stuff, they'll always be an interest in intelligence and spies and that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, it just reminded me of that story you told me. I think some of these little quiet bureaucratic moments that can be incredibly lethal. I was wondering if you could tell me about the experience, uh, the story that the, the gentleman from the National Archives told you about the Vietnamese that... Okay, so here's the story. So I go to the National Archives for 10 days, looking up documents and, and footage. And one of the archivists in their document floor 
took an interest in the project. He was a and maybe I shouldn't have said that, but <laughs> you might have to edit that part out. Sure. But um, an anonymous archivist took an interest and said, "Archivist that, X, oh, archivist, archivist X at yeah, the oh, National Archives." Better, even better. Archivist X took an interest and said, "I'm going to come with me." And he went into this back room and was just like taken out vietnam intelligence documents left and right and like hey you might be interested in this how about this how about this and then he told me a story of how soon after the war ended he didn't give me a year but it was probably had to be five seventy yeah something like that late 70s um a bunch of of formerly north vietnamese uh intelligence officers came to the national archives in civilian clothes ostensibly in civilian clothes yes and went through the re, did heavy research in the documents looking for informers they were looking at intelligence reports that would list the real names of informers so as part of the movie so there's several reports where you see that the original report has the name but i redacted some of the names and stuff just out of a concern for that now it's unlikely anything would happen so but yeah it was kind of it was kind of it was chilling for him when he told the story he's like they were you know methodical and they would just go through these you know god knows how much paper was generated in that war and so they would just go through this stuff and i know it's fascinating happened. i mean they, to think that the you know back in 1967 or 68 those guys that were making those reports they're thinking it's going to ultimately end up with general westmoreland but that you know, years later after the war was over that it had a completely different customer. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And the other thing too along those lines is that I know um, I had tried to find what were called special agent reports, which it's, it's referred to in the movie as a sort of nod to people who are real wonks with this stuff and know what that stuff was. But the special agent report was a specific type of report that was highly classified and is still classified. I couldn't get access to it. Apparently this stuff is in Fort Meade you're talking about these guys who would generate these reports back in the day during the war. Maybe they thought it was all going to wind up at Fort Meade and be classified in under lock and key. When, meanwhile, this stuff is what they did was de- declassified and is at the National Archives and any, anyone can look it up and reveal who these people were. Yeah, God, that makes me want to go to the National Archives right now. But it's probably closed. So what can we do with the shutdown? Probably closed. Probably yeah. closed. So let's, let's, uh, let's, let's end it there on an, an agnostic political... Uh, and kind of move on thanks for being on the live drop yes thank you thanks for bringing me up and that's my conversation with Michael Ryder he's a director who's filmed Agents Unknown one McPhee intelligence officer's story in Vietnam airs on Amazon video on demand January 2nd that's Agents Unknown January 2nd on Amazon video on demand end of transmission 